0: listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hi there, this is Kevin Milo with the uh, Primary Medicine Podcast coming at you from uh, London, Ontario this month. This is a special podcast for us because this is actually number 50 and as sort of special commemoration for that, we've got Dr. Ken Milne. Uh, an emergency physician based here in Southern Ontario, uh, but he's best known for the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. And you're going to find that link on the website, but I'd encourage you to come and listen to it because it's an outstanding uh, podcast on ev- evidence-based emergency medicine. So why don't I uh, hand things over to uh, Ken and uh, let you get started.
1: Well, I just want to say thank you very much for having me on your Big Five O. And I don't know if you tried to coordinate your Five O with my Five O, but yes, I have just turned the Big Five O. I'm letting it scab. I'm letting it develop. I'm being reflective, but I'm not going to let it change my life. But thanks for um, having a big EBM nerd like me on your show.
0: All right. No, that uh, sounds great. I can see the um, comfortable orthotics parked over there as well as the uh, compression stockings. <laughs> Whatever it takes to stay healthy. <laughs> so uh, why, don't we let you, uh, why don't we let you get started and just share some perspectives for us frontline practitioners on evidence-based uh, medicine and how to incorporate that, incorporate that into our practices, You know, how to evaluate this constant stream of literature that's coming our way.
1: Well, first of all, I guess, you know, because I'm a medical educator, I want to frame this with three educational points. And so I will probably be repeating this a number of times for spaced repetition. Wow, I'm breaking the third wall already. But spaced repetition throughout throughout this. But the three things that, you know, I want people to know about evidence-based medicine. First of all, oh, it rocks. Yeah, EBM rocks. Like what else are you going to do? Like, you know, eminence-based medicine? No, we've got evidence-based medicine. So you've got to realize evidence-based medicine rocks. So if you get that out of my voice or my enthusiasm, you're halfway there. And the second thing is something that I learned from my EBM mentor, Dr. Andrew Worster
0: out of McMaster University, the home of evidence-based medicine. And that's where you went, isn't it? That's right. Both Dimitri and I did do family medicine in uh, McMaster. And I remember working alongside... uh, Dr. Worcester during residency, and he's quite a towering figure in the world of evidence-based uh, research.
1: Now, I don't know if your tongue was firmly in your cheek when you said towering, because he's... um. um not not that big of stature, but I certainly wouldn't be critical of him. But um, I've got a nice picture of him and myself and my son, and it's sort of like three different levels. Six foot ten, six feet, and then, I don't know, what would we say, five seven?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let, I, I let you make that comment.
1: Okay, yeah, well. Anyways, so uh, Andrew taught me that the evidence-based medicine answer to any clinical question is, It all depends. So that's the second thing I want people to take away from this interview. And the last thing, the final thing, and it relates back to my podcast, is to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it from us today. So I want to encourage skepticism and critical thinking. It doesn't mean you're a nihilist. It doesn't mean you dismiss everything. It just means you question everything and go, really?
0: I want to know more about that. That sounds excellent, Ken. Uh, One question I had is, You know, where are some good sources to get the latest evidence-based literature that's coming out, you know, and how do you reconcile that with your practice or integrate that into your practice?
1: Yeah, it's one of the really, really hard things because there's something like, I don't know, 5,000 maybe now publications every day listed on PubMed. Maybe I'm off on that number, but it's something ridiculous, and and it's sort of like drinking from the fire hose, and it's not all good, high-quality H2O coming out of that fire hose e- either, so how do you filter that? And that's that's something that people struggle with, and I think that's where things like uh, good blogs and good podcasts that are part of the free open access to medical education world can help filter that information and uh, deliver and disseminate that fine H2O, so so you can get the best evidence and apply it to your patients so they get the best care. But it is a process, and you've got to come up with a strategy.
0: In your own experience on your on your own podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, what uh, drives you to choose the piece of literature that you review?
1: All right. So um, originally, it was pretty high tech. We used the health information resource um, I'm not remembering what the last letter is, but it's out of McMaster and it's part of the Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine program started by Andrew Worster. And what they do is they search the literature electronically for anything that's relevant to emergency medicine. And then with that information, they take anything that's consistent with their algorithm for emergency medicine from all of those publications that are put out daily, and then they send it out to 200-plus what they call beam raiders frontline emergency physicians who rate it on a scale of, I don't know, one to seven. And it's like one, no, that's useless. Never do it. Seven, I can't believe you're not doing that. In other words, practice changing, we should all incorporate that into our practice. And then anything over a five, they do a structured critical review on it. And it's that structured critical review where you were saying, how do you filter it? Well, there's this checklist that you can go through for different methodology. So if you've got a randomized control trial, there's 11 questions you ask to probe the literature for its validity. And that's the process to select the articles and then critically appraise the
0: articles. Uh, That's excellent. Um, How do you, in your view, looking broadly at our specialty, those of us in primary care, rural, family, emergency medicine, sort of frontline providers, what, in your opinion, do you want to see happen as you, as you describe on your website, what do you want to see happen in terms of knowledge translation? Like, how do we, like you said, get that translation time down? How do we get the word out and move people forward on the knowledge front in so many ways? Cause I mean, you know, we're not, you know, echocardiographers here. We're not focused on one narrow aspect of a specialty. We're, we're broad. So what do you want to see moving forward? for us in knowledge translation, for those of us, especially in family medicine, emergency medicine?
1: Well, first of all, you know, there is a knowledge translation problem and it's been estimated that it can take 17 years for high quality clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside, 17 years. And it's not for 100% of the information, actually it's for 14% of the information to reach the patient's bedside. So I usually just throw out the, it takes over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. And that's the KT window, the knowledge translation window. And what I'm hoping is with things like this and social media and this new paradigm that we're seeing of delivering medical information to the frontline providers, that we can cut down that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year. And one of the things that I do that hopefully keeps me healthy both physically and mentally is i listen to podcasts while i'm exercising and i can find you know that 20 or 30 minutes a day for me that i can go for a run or work out but i can also listen to something at the same time and then go back and reevaluate it and look at the primary literature after I've had a chance to listen to someone talk about it. So that's that's one of the ways that I find that people can cut the KT window down. If you have a bit of a commute, hey, turn that car into a classroom and learn something on the way.
0: That's excellent. What about those of us in a group setting, be it clinic, be it you know an emergency department or whatever, a group practice environment? Do you have any tips or advice on knowledge dissemination within the group, right? So, hey, I just came across this great piece of evidence-based literature. I think it should change practice. How do you facilitate that? And how? that's the first question I've gotten. How do you um, sort of mitigate um, some of the people that are, like you said, skeptical with that healthy skepticism who say, maybe I'm not ready to change my practice or try this new technique out? Go for it.
1: So, you know, there's social media things that you can put together in a group. So you can, you know, do something in Twitter. If you're an emergency physician, you probably have a short attention span and 140 characters would probably work well for you. But if you'd like to talk a little bit longer and more in depth about a a study or an idea or a concept, then start a Facebook group within your group and have that as a way that you can electronically on demand when you want to, when you have time, because we can't all get together and say, okay, yeah, we're all going to be sitting here for lunch and do this we don't get lunch we don't do lunch right do we I don't think so yeah no so uh, so I mean you know we all live busy lives outside of medicine as well so this is a nice way that you can fit it in within a uh, maybe a closed Facebook group to have it's almost like a virtual uh, doctor's lounge and you can hang out chat in that Facebook group and share information links papers and and then have those discussions about why you would suggest changing your practice and somebody else can
0: Challenge that and say, Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, what's lunch and what's sleep? You know what? I really like that Facebook approach. I'm just learning the Facebook myself, as the kids are calling it. Uh, Don't worry, I'm still on Face Palm. Yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) at any rate, I really do like, especially the point about being able to discuss over Facebook, right? Because inevitably, people are going to have questions when you present a new article or new information, and you're able to go back and forth. And that can help develop a group consensus, um, which I do think is is excellent.
1: Well, that's one of the things, you know, that brings up the first two points I wanted to make. And that was, you know, evidence-based medicine rocks. I'm all excited about it, but we don't treat populations. And that's one of the limits of evidence-based medicine. We don't treat 125 people in this primary care setting in this one urban or, well, Chances are it's not a rural environment, but an urban environment with this narrow population. I treat patients one at a time. And what I want to know when I'm sitting down and interacting with a patient is what's the best thing to do for them? And so that's that, that's that first point, you know, about, yeah, it rocks. But then that second point that Andrew taught me, it all depends. And that's where the discussion comes in. So how are you going to take this information, you'll evaluate it, but then apply it, To the patient that you have sitting in front of you. And we can have different interpretations of the same literature you might say well you know what's the harm there's not a lot of adverse events in in this study it wasn't quite my population and i'm willing to give it a try because it has some potential benefit and some associations whereas a more purist might be going yeah no, unless you prove it in our rct to me i'm not doing it i'm you know you have not i cannot reject the null hypothesis thank you very much so you know that's where the it all depends comes in
0: you know what, I think that's an outstanding point with regards to uh, actually applying it to the patient in front of you is is that it all depends. You know, I, I often go back to the number needed to treat or number needed to harm and you sit there providing a, a treatment or something like that asking yourself, so what are the odds that this patient in front of me is actually going to benefit?
1: Yeah, and you know, that's it's hard not to slip into nihilism when you're looking at sort of some of the primary care preventions and say, well, you know, the number needed to treat is over 100 or 200 and who funded that study and what were the limitations and the biases? And then you start, I don't want to go down. I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. So I really like to engage in shared decision-making with patients and say, well, here's what we got. Here's the limitations. It's flawed. It's not perfect, but neither am I as your physician near, neither are you as a patient, but between the two of us, I'll be the expert at the medicine. You be the expert at you. And between the two of us, we'll come up with a really good management plan that we're all happy with and comfortable with so that you get the best
0: care possible. Yeah. So keep going down that route. Talk to us about how you talk to patients about evidence-based medicine. Because I like trying to engage my patients, trying to explain a little bit about numbers needed to treat or why something may or may not work, especially when it's, you know, one of the common things we see is I want antibiotics for my sinusitis, right? Or something along those lines where, you know, you you need to explain numbers to patients and why something may not be effective. Strep throat would be another great example it's a process.
1: And, you know, the beauty of family medicine is it doesn't all have to happen in one interaction. It can evolve over time as a relationship. In the emergency department, it can be a bit more challenging and you've got to create those relationships fairly quickly. Uh, so it's, it depends on which relationship uh, or which environment you're working in. But I try to engage people and say, listen, there has been some research on this, but you can't get into all the fancy sort of terms. But number needed to treat is one of the ways you can do it. I like showing pictures. I like you know, like saying, okay, if you had a hundred people and you know, ninety-seven of them are red because they had you know a bad outcome, and three people had a good outcome. You know, but everybody, um, everybody's a bit different, and you know, you got to take individual approaches with each and every patient because the diseases may be the same. But the patient who has the condition or injury or disease or problem, they're the unique ones.
0: You know what? I like that a lot. I often myself will use the example to patients. I'll say, imagine that I cloned you and put 100 of you in this room. Here's how many of you are actually going to get better with this. Or here's the likelihood that if all of you in this room, 100 of you cloned, had the disease, that this test is going to actually tell us what's going on because that'll help, I think, explain things. And I think we we do have a patient population, you know, people out there are more informed. I mean, as I read the popular media, I keep seeing and, you know, they're by no means evidence-based, but as I follow the, you know, popular media news websites and whatnot that uh, I read, it's interesting to see how much the term evidence-based pops up into everything, whether it's, you know, environmental discussions or healthcare discussions, but the lay population is starting to get attuned to this term. Whether they truthfully, you know, fully appreciate what that means is a n- different question. But there I think people, your patients are beginning to expect that at least their doctor's familiar with those sorts of things and is able to talk to them on some some level in regards to evidence-based medicine. So certainly for my patients that I say are quite good at self-advocating and using Dr. Google, I find it a useful way to engage them so that they are understanding a lot more than I'm the doctor, I'm the expert, here's your prescription or here's why you're not getting a prescription.
1: Well, there's some really good points in there. And one of the things that I want to make sure that we're not losing track of is the definition of evidence-based medicine. And maybe we should have backed up a bit and and done this at the beginning, but I don't want us to focus in on evidence-based medicine being just about the literature because that is not what Dave Sackett originally set up evidence-based medicine or coined the term to be. It's not just about the literature. It's a Venn diagram. And in that Venn diagram, there's three circles and one of those circles is the literature but the other two circles are the physician the provider the person giving the care their knowledge skills abilities resources and then of course the most in Important person in the relationship, the patient and their values. Just because one study says this should be done doesn't mean that that patient wants to do that or wants not to try that medication or would accept that side effect. So the patient's values, those three things, and I think the actual definition is it's the conscientious. So we've got to use our conscience, right? The explicit, so this is why we're doing it, The judicious, which means we've got to use our clinical judgment. So the conscientious, explicit, judicious use of the best evidence, not the crappiest evidence. We want to go for the best, highest quality evidence to make individual patient decisions. So it's not about populations. And the only way I would tweak that is to say to make shared decisions.
0: I love it. I think that's a great segue into our role as healthcare providers in supporting patient autonomy. You know, a good example is, you know, chest x-ray in kids in whom parents or uh, maybe even another doctor is concerned about uh, pneumonia or you're concerned about pneumonia and and going through what that means and, you know, likelihoods of this being a viral pneumonia, if we do see something that's radiographically apparent, the high failure rate of antibiotics and obviously treating something that's viral... I see it in my own practice as I go through that discussion with patients and families that they feel a lot better, that there's some sort of rationale behind why you're doing things. And I by and large find that patients and families are very happy with exactly as you describe it, Ken, that shared decision-making model. Um, let's pivot back to colleagues a little bit. Talk to me about how you engage with your colleagues when they say, you know what, I don't believe what this study's showing or you know what? I'm not ready to change my practice yet because you made a very good point about it being the best evidence not necessarily the latest. So how do you how do you get into those discussions and how do you how do you deal with somebody who's like all right all right sepsis I've heard enough how much fluid you know and so we keep going back and forth now talk to me about that Well, I guess,
1: you know, the way not to do it is to look them in the eye and go, I can't believe you're that stupid. (laughs) You know, and you can't do that with patience either, right? You can't go, oh my God, I can't believe you're still doing that. You are so ignorant um, no you've got to you've gotta uh, be welcoming and understanding and caring because at the end of the day your colleague i'm sure i'm absolutely sure they have their best patient interests at heart, so they care about the patients you care about the patients, so you're already on the same page, and then it's just you're talking about the literature, and so people can have more than one approach and i guess you know in the grand scheme of things when we're talking about evidence-based medicine we've got to remember most of the stuff we do is based on very flimsy evidence we are standing on pillars of salt and sand here and the sand is always shifting so i do not get too dogmatic and i do not get too like there are very few thou shalt do this And thou shalt not do that. And you had NNT earlier. I I think, you know, the only thou shalt that I really think applies is um, we should have an NNT of one. We should be able to help every single person we see. So thou shalt have an NNT of one to help or benefit. But other than that, I don't get into like a, a drop down, throw down. Oh, let, let, me, let me tape up my nerd glasses and put them on and, and starch up that white lab coat and say, oh yeah, you just bring on that 95% confidence interval because I'm coming back at you with likelihood ratios and it'll be P values after that.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, my own limited experience, I mean, I don't have decades behind me working, but, you know, I remember when I was at McMaster, like Ken alluded to earlier, that this is the heart of evidence-based medicine, I would say in Canada, but also, uh, North America to a certain degree. I remember this older clinician gave us a lecture and I think he was an internist and he says, you got to watch out because, yeah, we're always, you know, focused and obsessed on evidence-based literature. But he says, like, you know, you have to be careful because he's seen so much come in and then so much go out again. You know, and I think about even my short time in sepsis residency, it was all about early goal directed therapy and like CVPs and right IJs and the whole, the whole gamut. And then we completely kind of gone in a different direction with, uh, with sepsis care. And so that does make me pause and sort of think about, you know, being careful about how aggressively we push maybe the latest and greatest because it might be something that two, three years down the road, the evidence points in a different direction.
1: <laughs> it reminds me of that uh, Star Trek movie, uh, Voyage Home, Star Trek 4, The Voyage Home, when Dr. McCoy is like doing one of his, I can't believe you're still doing that. What are you using, cat gun? What are you going to drill into the head for a subdural hematoma? You know, uh, back in, uh, I think it was the 1980s when that movie came out, but of course I'm stuck in the 80s. And you know, so we can't be hypercritical. It's like we're all trying our best. We're all doing our best. And I like, you know, it, that scene your statesman at, at McMaster that elderly clinician you know things do come and go and the tides do change and so you know you don't want to be the first one on you don't want to be the last one on but when you're doing stuff remember that the big things in medicine have already been done and we're, we're playing in the margins now now what we do matters what we do matters and we want to try to get the best care possible but we're in the margins I mean you know clean water wash your hands between patients, um, you know, immunization, antibiotics. And, you know, now we're sort of running out of things that make a huge difference. But we can make a huge difference, and that's that humanity that we have with medicine. That's the art of medicine. That's the interaction. That's the relationship we have. And if we're talking about evidence-based medicine in that context that it all depends. And I'm going to be skeptical of anything new that comes out. And I'm also going to be skeptical and reflective of what I'm doing now to say, hmm, is this still the best way forward for my patients?
0: I think that's excellent. Tell me how you use levels of evidence in your discussions about evidence-based medicine, you know, and where do you put things like consensus opinion and that um, in, in your own ranking you know, or your own mind? Yeah, no. I mean, there is this pyramid
1: of evidence um, that's been put out there, and the peer, so I always say that everyone who's practicing medicine is practicing evidence-based medicine. So if you're listening to this, going, "Oh my God, I'm not that nerdy. I can't do that kind of," you 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 are practicing evidence-based medicine because what you're doing is, and it's on the base of the pyramid. This is what I was taught. This is what Worcester told me to do. Right? And it doesn't mean it's wrong. And it doesn't mean it's right. It just means that's what I was told to do. So that's the that's the bottom of the pyramid, eminence-based medicine. But we know that there are so many cognitive biases with regards to practicing eminence-based medicine, such as recall bias. Yeah, you remember the hits and forget the misses. And then we move up into randomized control trials. So everybody's practicing evidence-based medicine, number one. Number two is we can do better with randomized control trials, blinding trials, trying to eliminate some of those biases. And then this is where it gets a little you know, but that eminence might still be right. And that randomized control trial may validate that eminence, right? Um, but the randomized control trial, and then you get up into things like uh, the top of the pyramid, which are systematic reviews and meta-analyses. The only problem with that is, you know, I would take some good, large, well-done, solid, methodological, randomized control trials over a crappy meta-analysis because... Yeah, you know, and I grew up on a farm, so I mean, I'm always talking about apple pies and cow pies. I was I I grew up on an apple orchard, and you know, if you if you take a cow pie and that's not an apple pie, and add it to an apple pie, it does not make the apple pie taste any better. So you you know, and so you can say garbage in and garbage out. I'll be nice. I don't want to lose your rating, but poop in or poop out.
0: Oh no, no, we're we're
1: worse than that. Okay, so uh, you know, I'll keep it I'll keep it clean. But um, you know, like if it's crappy little studies, if you have a number of crappy little studies, and you throw it in a meta-analysis, you do not get yourself closer to the truth. You can get the decimal point to six or seven figures, but you are no closer to the truth by combining crappy little studies. So again, you have to be skeptical and have the tools to be able to evaluate the literature appropriately to be able to apply it to the existing literature and what you're doing clinically.
0: You know what? I love that. Something maybe a little more controversial. Tell me how you think we're doing in Canada when it comes, Comes to practice updates and guidelines, um, especially with regards to the various professional societies and specialties that are putting out guidelines. How are we doing? You know, as a whole, I mean, there's probably room to do better, but give me your thoughts on that.
1: Glasses half full kind of guy. So I'm going to say we're doing better. When guidelines first came out um, early in my practice over 20 years ago, um, uh, I was like, oh, great. There's something that's consolidated the information for me. It, it, it was vast back then. It's even vaster now. Somebody's consolidated that down into some guidelines. But what happened midway through my career is these guidelines became – uh Dictations, like they dictated my care. They, thou shalt do this, and thou shalt do that,
0: and, and standards of care. And thou shalt not deviate from this, or thou is a bad doctor. And it but some of that's built on consensus opinion panels, right? Yeah, exactly. Blame and shame, though.
1: That's uh, yeah, no, it's it's gray hairs and no hairs. Let's be clear, it's gray hairs and no hairs, because most of the information that we're using is weak, and yet they would come out with these things, and and then you know pharmaceutical industry got involved, and it got involved in a way that would be able to promote certain products and then there was conflicts of interest both financial and intellectual conflicts of interest and so there there was that period of I was lost in the wilderness when it came to guidelines but I've come in from the wilderness and the guidelines are getting better they're tightening up they're using really um, they're standardizing them and they're giving graded levels of evidence with regards to what's the level of evidence this is A, B, or C, or 1, 2, or 3, whatever system you're using, and then what's the strength of the recommendation? And the transparency is really improved. It's not perfect, it's not great, but like I I said, you know, evidence-based medicine is the best form of medicine that's ever, well, sorry, the worst form of medicine that's ever been practiced, except all others that have been tried. Sort of like democracy, right? Democracy, it's the worst form of government, except all others that have been tried. So, we're getting there, Um, it's not a straight line, Uh, we're weaving and dodging and moving from side to side, but I think it is getting better and I'm a glasses half full kind of guy.
0: I'm going to change directions a little bit here. I know we've got a lot of American listeners and others from different parts of the world. Do, do we have to speak
1: American now?
0: No, no, no. We don't want to talk American. Just, just Canadian, eh? Don't you know? Don't you know? But I really want to, you know, just reflect on what a, you know, I mean, we've got certainly issues in our healthcare system. Ken will speak to that. I mean, I practice in Alberta. He practice in Ontario. We both see system issues within Canada but I think we live in a really remarkable and practice in a really remarkable healthcare system because I feel that by being relatively shielded from complaints and litigation I'm empowered to practice evidence-based medicine I'm empowered to not order that CT just because a patient's demanding it say for a minor head injury empowered not to order those x-rays empowered to use my clinical judgment And let evidence-based medicine inform me in my practice. Uh, I reflect on this, you know, having attended a number of American CME events, but also having worked side alongside a number of colleagues for a few years now who come from American practice backgrounds and say that, you know, they're very up on the literature, but there's always that pressure from hospital administration and complaints, uh, pressure from potential lawsuits to go against evidence-based medicine and practice, you know, medically safe medicine. Um, to avoid litigation or avoid complaints. And, you know, when I think about containing costs, I often think that evidence-based medicine aligns well with that because we're trying to do the best what's right. And whether we ever find out the truth per se in any given clinical uh, encounter or scenario or whether we'll ever get there, I doubt it. But it's nice to know that we can get as close to it as possible and apply that in our everyday practice without a bunch of external factors. So, that's just my own sort of reflection on having been in practice for a few years is I, I appreciate the practice environment that we as physicians in this country have uh, because I do feel empowered to practice from an evidence based perspective which I truthfully believe is the best for my patients I don't know if you have any thoughts to even add to that
1: well the the thing that I would add to that is not to get hypercritical of the American system it's the system that they've decided to use and we and and it it isn't a system per se it's fragmented to quite a significant extent and you mentioned that there's legal issues and that there's financial issues in there besides legal you know because it's a for-profit system they, they have they have Evidence, But again, it, evidence-based medicine is it takes place in a context and it all depends. And, it, and if you're, you know, facing potential lawsuits or if you have financial pressures to either be ordering tests on some patients and not ordering investigations on the other, I understand that. It may not be the practice environment that I want to participate in. It's really tough for them. To be able to practice in that environment, high-quality, clinically relevant information. When there's so many competing interests beyond just what's in the best interest for this one patient.
0: Yeah, no, I love I love that statement, and I think that very accurately sums it up because we have so many uh, colleagues down in the states who are generating outstanding research, outstanding practice guidelines, who bring us the best. But yeah, I just I reflect on it, you know, and like I said, having hired. A few and worked alongside a few of my colleagues they say that it is notably different um, coming here but
1: uh, but, you, but you but you notice uh, or sorry not notice but you know as well as I do that we practice in an environment where we have limitations with access to specialized care so I mean it, it's a balance and 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 it's a reflection of what our society has decided to do and what their society has decided to do. And the outcome is X. And that's what we have. And if we're happy with it, we're happy with it. If we're not, we're not.
0: Oh, no, no. I mean, there are days I wish I was down in the States. I mean, there's so many chest pains, so many chest pains that I struggle to push through the door of cardiology because uh, they feel like, oh, two troponins negative and out the door they go. And I know that this, you know, would be a lot easier discussion down in the States. And so I certainly, from the resource perspective, yeah, um, there's a lot to be said that way. Absolutely. Why don't you, can go ahead, summarize evidence-based medicine for us. Again, go back to those key words. Tell us what you love about it. Tell us how we can, you know, make it real in our practices.
1: Sure. So I'll go back to those three things. And those three things the first thing, it rocks. Evidence based medicine rocks. And, and I, you know, being able to talk to you about it just gets me excited and makes me want to do more and be more involved in knowledge translation. So again, evidence based medicine rocks. I mean, isn't it the best? And what's the alternative, right? It's the worst system possible, except all others they've been tried so evidence-based medicine rocks and then when we're talking about evidence-based medicine it all depends it's not just the literature and thou shalt do this and i'm being dictated to do that by a guideline it takes place in a context and we should strive to have an nnt of one to help one patient every single patient we come into count encounter we should be able to help and then that third thing is But it never stops. We've always got to keep our skeptical radar up and ready and going because we need to be able to incorporate new information and new ideas. And that new information and new ideas may just reaffirm what we're already doing or it may change from time to time our practice. But we have to be able to skeptically and critically appraise the literature without becoming nihilistic. So at the end of the day, Our ultimate goal is that patients get the best care based on the best evidence.
0: You know what? I absolutely love that. Um, This was an outstanding talk. I really want to thank you, Ken, for uh, giving us the time, um, joining us for, like I said, our 50th podcast, and uh, we hope to get you back eventually again as well.
1: Maybe I'll be back on for 100, but I don't want to be 100 when we're doing this, okay?
0: Uh, No, I think we're going faster than that, thankfully. (laughs) All right. Again, thank you so much, Ken.
1: My pleasure.